The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. We got D-Now going on. So you guys are tired. Y'all just want to sleep. Cam just wants to eat a muffin right in front of me. Dude, what do you think that does to me? You know what I'm saying? So... If y'all get sleepy, I'm not having it. I mean, that's not how it works up in here. When you got a job, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to sit here and lecture y'all. How's everybody doing? Y'all good back here past the D-Now section? We are continuing in our study of the book of Genesis. And, uh, you know, Jared started it last week. And in this series, we're going to see one repeating theme over and over. And that is God uses evil for good. Those, those words come from Joseph's own mouth in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, at the end of his life, at the end of the story of enduring incredible evil at the hands of his brothers. Any of you guys ever endured evil at the hands of your brothers? Yeah, okay. No, that's my brother. Put your hand back down. Yeah, I'm talking about these guys right here, Dean Al. So, you know, God forgive him for lying in church. So all of us can experience enduring a level of persecution from our brothers, but Joseph, whole new ball game. I mean, they literally wanted to kill him, not figuratively, literally. They wanted to kill him. They almost did. They threw him into the bottom of a pit. Uh, His life was in danger. They ended up selling him into slavery, uh, and he ends up being purchased by Pharaoh uh, or by Potiphar, who was the right-hand man to Pharaoh or or high man in Pharaoh's charge. And and that's where we left the story off last week. But the the thing to put yourself in, in Joseph's shoes, and I think maybe you can relate to this, God had just told him twice in a dream, twice meaning it is settled, you can count on it, take it to the bank, God's word is going to happen. And that was in a dream, God told him, your family's going to bow down to you, you're going to rule over them. So he goes from this mountaintop experience, like I hope some of you are having this weekend in D-Now, going from this mountaintop experience of God revealing to him his plan for his life, and it is awesome. And then moments later, he's in the bottom of a pit and his life is in danger and he is lost and he's just been suffered in terrible injustice and evil and wickedness at the hands of his brothers. At that point in time, more than ever, he needed to remember the truth that I pray the Lord emblazons on your heart over the next six weeks. God uses evil for good. I want you to say that with me out loud. Say that with me out loud. God uses evil for good. All right? That's that's what I want you to remember no matter what you're going through. And that's the point of of the story of Joseph. God uses evil for good. I mean, he had revealed to him, God revealed to him massive, wonderful promises. It's all right, Cameron. The water will be there to clean up later. <laughs> He's like going, what do I do now? <laughs> it's okay, bro. Just relax. Enjoy the sermon. Focus on God's word. We'll clean the water up later. <laughs> All right. So God uses evil for good. He had just been told promises from God. Now, we are in a similar situation in our own life. God has revealed great, glorious promises to you about your life. What are some of those promises? Jared mentioned some last week. 
But the big grand picture that we see, which we've talked about is the story of the Bible, is one massive promise to Abraham that God is going to redeem a people unto himself through Christ, and God is going to restore all things, his people and his planet. And so Jesus is the key to all of that. He promises through Jesus Christ, he'll redeem us, he'll make us his children, he gives us a new identity, child of God, saint, holy one, And he says, this is who you are in Christ. That's a massive, important promise. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father after he rose from the grave. He promised to come again. And he promises, when I come again, I'll receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. He promises to resurrect the dead. He says, when I come again, the dead will rise in Christ. And he promises that all his children will reign and rule with him forever. Absent of pain, no more tears, no more sadness, no more sorrow. Reigning eternally with Christ in eternal glory and bliss. As the children of God, all that he's declared about you will become a reality. These are all the promises of God. He promises, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. God has so many promises. He says, all the spiritual blessings of the heavenly places are yours in Christ. He promises there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. All these great promises, and yet here you are finding yourself at the bottom of a pit. And looking up and going, God, what about your promises? That's the story of Joseph. And yet we're going to see Joseph respond, faithful, faithful, faithful. How does he do it? It's because he knows something that's unseen. He is convinced of something that God has said. He is convinced of things he can't see. That's what faith is, right? Hebrews tells us that faith is a conviction of things unseen, certainty of things hoped for. And what is it? The the way I want to describe it today is, repeat after me, God uses evil for good. Say it again. God uses evil for good. Don't ever forget that. That's what gets you through the difficulties of life. Evil comes in all shapes and sizes. Our, fa- our health fails us. It's sin against others, sin against us. Just indirect result of sin in general. Bad things happen. They don't make sense. And we wrestle. How can God be good and this evil still be true? Well, in the next six weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to see, which culminates in the Easter message God uses evil for good. Father God, I pray you'll teach us this truth, not just in our heads, but deep within our hearts, that you will teach us that you use evil for good. Lord, I pray that you will give us a heart of faith, faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins this morning and faith in Jesus Christ that he will never let us down, that he is proof certain that God uses evil for good. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So what we see in Joseph's life, we see in our own life, the problem is there's a long delay between the promises made and promises delivered, right? 
It wasn't, hey, you're gonna, your brothers are going to bow down to you right now. It was at the end of his life. And it's the same true for us. At the end of our spiritual life, at the end of our Christian lives, all the God's promises when he returns will ultimately be true. And what we are required of in the meantime is faith, certainty of things unseen. And that is based on the character of God. The more that we know God and his goodness and his faithfulness, the more our faith is strengthened. And so that's why we go to God's word. We've been studying Genesis to know God, to know his character. If you begin the book of Genesis, it's here's the God of Abraham. Here's the God of Isaac and Jacob. Here's Israel's God. Here's the God of Jesus. Here's your God. Get to know him. He is faithful. He is good. He has promised all sorts of incredible blessings to you. And as you experience suffering, very real, painful evil, as you experience that, know God uses evil for good. So how are we going to see this today? We're going to work through... uh, Judah, and, and it's kind of a, wait, I thought we were on Joseph. We are. We, we see what happens in the story of Joseph in chapter 37. Last week, we saw Joseph was favored by his father, given a coat of many colors. He, he bragged about this dream, bad idea, but young brother going, yeah, I'm going to, you're going to bow down to me. What young brother wouldn't brag about that to his brothers? You know, you just, you can't help yourself. And then he gets stripped of that coat thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, winds up in Potiphar's house. And then we get to chapter 38. And what we find is it says in verse one, and it came about at that time that Judah, and you're going, wait, Judah, I thought we were talking about Joseph. We were talking about Joseph, but the author, God inspired the author to insert Judah and Tamar, this story right in the middle of the Joseph story. And the reason is the point is the same. God uses evil for good in Joseph's life and God uses evil for good in Judah's life. God uses evil for good, period. For all people, all times, all ages, God uses evil for good. So we're gonna look at Judah and then we're gonna look at Onan and then we're going to look at Tamar, three main characters. There are other characters involved, but some of them are very brief. So the, just look at these three main characters and we're going to estimate or, or examine their lives and consider what God does in this story. So it says in 38.1, so we're starting out with Judah, our first character to consider. In chapter 38, verse one, it says, and it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers. All the brothers that just sold Joseph into slavery. Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. So this is his bro. This is his friend, Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So he marries her. He goes into her in verse three. It says, so she conceived and bore a son and he named him Ur. I don't know. I can't make Ur sound better. That's just his name, Ur. I've tried every pronunciation in the book. Ur, er, Ur, Ur, Ur. It's just bad. I mean, his name is Ur. All right, verse four. Then she conceived again and bore his name and, and bore him a son and named him Onan. And then verse five, she bore still another son and named him Shelah. That's right. Some parents name their boys girl names. Tracy, Sheila. I mean, you know, that's just what happens sometimes. 
And it was a Chazib that she bore him. It was at Chazib that she bore him. So, okay, so what's going on? So Judah gets married, has three kids, Ur, Onan, and Shelah, three boys. Now, if you know what's going on in the story, as good readers, you start to go, wait a minute. Judah, as you will find later in the story, is the chosen seed. So we got Abraham, and that's the promise. Abraham's seed ultimately is going to lead to Jesus. All right, that's the point of the Bible. That's the point of the story, that Jesus is the redeemer and the store of all things, okay? And so we're tracing through these stories Abraham's seed, Abraham's children. And he has lots of children, but which one is the special child that's going to lead to the next special child that's going to lead to Jesus? That's what we're doing. We're tracing the storyline. Abraham had Isaac. It was Isaac, not Ishmael. And then you say Isaac had Jacob. It was Jacob, not Esau. And then you say, okay, now we get to the next children of Jacob and you see two main characters. You see Judah and then you're going to see Joseph. And we're going to see most of the story is about Joseph. But what we find in the middle of the story, it's not Joseph, it's Judah. That doesn't mean God doesn't have great plans for Joseph. He does. And this is not just so narrowly talking about salvation. It's talking about in particular leading to the Messiah. And so he says, it's, we know it's going to be Judah that's going to be the promised line that leads to the Messiah, but we're going to learn so much about Joseph. And so as readers, we're going, okay, Judah is the chosen line, and he's getting married, but he's marrying Canaanite woman. This is a problem. Because if you remember, Isaac sent a servant to find a bride from Abraham's family, not from the Canaanites. Jacob went off to Laban into the family to find a bride instead of on the Canaanites. God does not want them to find a wife from among the Canaanites, from the pagan cultures. And here we find Judah, the chosen, the next in line, getting married among the Canaanites. He marries a Canaanite woman. And so we know the seed, the promised seed is in danger. The seed that's supposed to lead the Messiah to the Messiah is in danger of continuation. And so we're wondering, well, how's this going to work out? How is this problem going to be fixed? So back to the story. Judah marries, and he has three boys. And then what happens? Look at verse 6. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn child. And her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was what? Evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord took his life. Boom, it's over. That's what we know about her. Let me pause there and think for a minute. Well, that sounds mean, doesn't it? God took her. God ended his life. Now, from their perspective, maybe they don't know it. We have God-inspired commentary that says he didn't just die of natural causes. God took him. Because he was an evil, wicked dude. And you say, how is that right? How is that fair? How is that just? Well, we've been getting to know the God of the Bible, the God, our God. And what does Genesis 1-1 teach us about God? God is the creator of life. He is the sustainer of life. He owns your life in his hands. Every one of us. Every breath you have is a gift from God. And instead of rising up in pride and saying, how dare God, the question should be, how has God put up with her so long? It's not what we ask, is it? When evil is 
taken care of by God, we think, well, that just seems harsh. Because in our hearts, we think that we deserve, what is it now, 80? I don't know the average age. We think that we deserve a certain life expectancy. And what we need to understand is God does not promise you tomorrow. And so it is a gift from God. Every heartbeat, every breath, every day that you have, it is another gift that you should repent of your evil ways. Ur did not, and Ur's life was ended. So Tamar marries Ur, Ur dies. Look at verse eight. This brings us to our second character, Onan. Judah did evil, and now we see Onan. Verse 8, Judah said to Onan, which is Ur's brother, go to your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. All right, what are these talking about there? Well, this is what's called a Leverite marriage, which comes from Latin, which just means brother-in-law marriage. In Deuteronomy, we see God wanted to ensure his chosen line was continued on. He didn't want the chosen name of the Israelites to end. And so they were responsible, according to Deuteronomy 25, verse 6, the brother-in-law was to marry the widow of his brother, quote, it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So in order for Israel to continue to expand and multiply and fill the earth, there was this Leverite law in the word of God in Deuteronomy that says that a brother should marry the brother-in-law's or the brother's widow if he dies in order to bear a son. And then once that son is born, that son takes on his father, not his uncle, takes on his father's name and all of his rights and carries on that family line. So it was a need to preserve the families of Israel. So God, no, God told Onan, you need to go and perform this for your brother Ur with his wife. Verse 9, we see what he did. Onan knew, he knew that the offspring would not be his. And so when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted the seed on the ground in order not to give an offspring to his brother. So Onan, like everyone else in this scene, is rebelling against God. Onan was only concerned about himself. He wasn't concerned about God's will. He said, well, if she has children, that's going to take away the inheritance from my kids. That's going to give the firstborn the rights to, that child, to those children. I want those for my family. So just like Judah, just like Ur, we see Onan acting sinfully, wickedly, only worried about himself, disregarding God's will. So what happened? Look at verse 10. It says, but what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so God took his life too. Boom. The Old Testament has a way of showing us a very clear picture of the wrath of God and what we all deserve apart from the grace of God. These are two stark reminders to all of us. God does not promise time to repent later. The time for repentance is now. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ now. Do not make a mockery of God's patience. The only potential injustice here is that God does not immediately take out 
everyone. The real question of the text is not, how could God take Ur out? That's not it. It's not, how could God take Onan out? That's not it. You know what the real question of the text is? How has God not taken Judah out? Verse 11, then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Sheila grows up. Now, why did he say that? Sounds pretty noble. No, it says, for he thought, I'm afraid that he, Sheila, too, may die like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. So you see what's going on here. Dad's thinking, Judah's thinking, all right, Tamar married Ur, Ur dropped dead. Tamar married Onan, Onan dropped dropped dead. Judah's like, Tamar ain't marrying Sheila because I like my kids and I only got one left. And she's a black widow. This one's killing my kids off. Doesn't think for a second, it's not Tamar just doing this. And so he sends Tamar off and says, go and live with your family. And when Sheila gets of age, I'll, he implies, I'll call you back and then you'll marry my third son. It's all going to be good. It's all going to be fine. It's not. He is totally doing her wrong. So Judah is not looking good. He's totally doing Tamar wrong. So he tells her, remain a widow in your father's house, and when Sheila's of age, will come. But really, he is afraid that he will lose his last son. So Genesis 38, 12, our attention shifts now to Tamar. Judah is doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Ur was evil in the sight of the Lord. Onan's doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, what about Tamar? Look at verse 12. Now, after a considerable time, Tamar, she was daughter. No, excuse me. Uh, she was daughter, the wife of Judah died. So Judah's wife dies while Tamar is away with her family. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went, in, went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah. He and his friend Hera the Adulamite. So Judah and his buddy are heading to the sheep shearers. And one preacher in his sermon talks about the sheep shearing time as Mardi Gras as wickedness gone wild, as pure, unadulterated sin, wickedness. We're starting to see a picture of Judah married a woman of his culture, and he has gone headfirst into culture with her, and he is evil. He is not doing good. And now it's time to go party and and live in sin at the sheep shearer convention, and he's heading off, and at verse 13... It was told to Tamar, hey, Tamar, the father-in-law is about to pass by on his way to the sheep shearing convention, and this is your chance. And so verse 14, so she took off her widow's garment, and she covered herself with a veil, and she wrapped herself. And that means that she was putting on her engagement outfit. That veil was was a sign of betrothal, and so she had been betrothed to the youngest son, Sheila, and she's saying, it's time for you to fulfill your duty, your, keep your word, and do what's right, and so I'm going to help him remember what he promised, and so as he heads by, she positions herself at the gate on the way by with her, her engagement clothes on. 
And so she sat in verse 14, she sat in the gateway of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. And that's exactly what Deuteronomy says that she was supposed to do. Deuteronomy goes on to explain in this Leverite marriage that if they fail to do their duty, the wife or the, the engaged, the betrothed woman should present themselves and make their case. And then it gets funny because I don't get the cultural, it's lost in translation, but it says then if they don't fulfill their duty, she's supposed to take off her sandal, spit in his face, and they are to ever be known as the one who had the sandal removed. So yeah. That's what you do if the, the betrothed doesn't follow through. You spit in their face and wave your sandal at them, and they'll always be known about that, about them. And you don't want that said about you. The sandal was removed. So that's what she was doing. So at this point, she's doing what she's supposed to do. She's here, she's here, she sees the word of God, and she's keeping the word of God. But imagine how hard this would be for Tamar because her security her provision is wrapped up in this. She's vulnerable. She is vulnerable, making herself vulnerable. Say, hey, do what you're supposed to do. And here comes this powerful man who's supposed to be taking care of her and doing what's right. And he's shown no regard thus far to do that. And so she's just setting her, laying herself out there, subjecting herself to him again. And then we get to verse 15. When Judah saw her, He thought she was a harlot. He thought she was a prostitute because she had her face covered. Didn't know it was his daughter-in-law. And apparently that's what was going on in this scene where he's going is it's all about the prostitution and the the sin gone crazy. And so in verse 16, it says, So Judah turned aside to her by the road, And he said, here now, let me come in to you. For he did not know that it was his daughter-in-law. So Judah is, he is sinful. Now at this point, Tamar is in a massive moment of crisis, a crisis of decision. She realizes Judah doesn't know who I am. She's been trying to, trust the Lord, try to do what's right, trying to say, I'm just going to obey God. He's going to take care of me. I'm going to trust that God uses evil for good. And so she's just trying her best to present herself. And she realizes Judah doesn't know who I am. And we feel for her. And rightfully so. She's being sinned against. She is at a crisis. Will I trust the Lord in the greatest scariest moment of my life or will I compromise? What would you do? What does she do? Look at verse 16. It says, and she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? Ah. Even Tamar sins. Verse 17, well, he said, therefore I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, moreover, will you give me a pledge until you send it? Now we're starting to see she's not just, she's been thinking about this set up here. Verse 18, he says, well, what pledge shall I give you? 
And she says, give me your seal. That's his signet ring, which is how clearly identifies who he is. Give me your seal, give me your cord, and give me the staff that's in your hand. Basically, give me all forms of identification. So he gave them to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garment. So she went back home, put on her widow's garment, has all his identification on her, Later on, Judah tries to follow through on his pledge and you can just hear the sanctimonious, self-righteous pride in him as he tries to send the goat to her because he needs to get his ID back. In verse 38, verse 20, he says, <clears throat> it says, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he didn't find her. He asked the men of her place saying, where's the temple prostitute who was by the road at Enum? But they said, there is not, there's been no temple prostitute here. So he turned to Judah and he said, I didn't find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, well, let her keep them. Otherwise we will become a laughing stock. So let's just let this dog die. And afterwards, he said, after all, I'm innocent. I tried to send the goat. You realize what's going on here? The dude just slept with his daughter-in-law thinking she was a prostitute. And yet he can sit there in good conscience say, hey, my conscience is clear. I told her I'd give her a goat. I tried to give her the goat. It's not my fault. How messed up are we? I mean, before we think Judah's just this scoundrel, let's be honest. I mean, yeah, it's not temple prostitutes and goats, but we got our own version of this going on. You know, hey, while I'm doing this, nobody knows about it, but as long as I can be publicly seen as doing what's right, hey, I kept my word, I keep my pledges. We're such mixed bags, aren't we? And that's what we see in Judah. He's such a messed up dude. So he takes some comfort. I tried. I tried to send the goat. I, I don't need to have a guilty conscience about anything here. This is where it gets real good or real bad. Verse 38, 24. Now it's about three months later. So Tamar's starting to show now. About three months later, Judah was told, hey, Judah, I got bad news. What? Your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Do what? And behold, she's pregnant. You've got to be kidding me. And I can imagine what he said next. And it wasn't uplifting. That sleazy. How could she do that? Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Self-righteous condemnation, judgmental, I'm innocent, she's guilty, let her take her punishment. And by the way, that gets her out of my family. That means I don't have to let her marry my third son. That's really convenient. 
So as we feel disgusted over Judah's wickedness, we need to admit our own similarities. When I see someone lose their patience and their anger, I'm quick to say, they better get a hold of that because they got a serious problem. When I lose my patience and my anger, well, it's because they're idiots and they just don't get it, right? I give myself the pass, but everyone else is held to a much higher standard. That's what our wicked hearts do. You see, when we look at these stories, we're looking for the hero of the story because that's us. I mean, I know I'm in there somewhere and this one has a real hard time finding one. I was thinking it was Tamar and then that kind of messed up. But I know I'm not Judah. I know I'm not Ur. I know I'm not Onan. Well, who am I in this story? Yeah, that's us. Which one are you? Which which character are you? Well, not Ur or Onan because we're still breathing because of God's grace. But maybe we're Judah. We've been given a level of power and prestige and, and we're abusing it and we're justifying our own sin and we're pointing fingers at everybody else and we're critical and judgmental against everyone else except ourselves. Or maybe we're Tamar. And we find ourselves on the end of a lot of abuse and neglect and evil at the hand of others who shouldn't treat us the way they've treated us. And yet we still have a responsibility to be faithful. In either case, the message is the same. I wonder if you've already forgotten the message. Do you remember what we've said together aloud? I want you to say it again. I'm not going to say anything. What's the main point? Let's say it again. Y'all are smart. That's the point. God uses evil for good. And you go, okay, where's the good in here? We're getting to it. Look at verse 25. It was while she, Tamar, was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And then as Jonathan Knight has said, then it was the Mari Povic show. Then they brought out the ID. You're the father. She said, please examine and see whose signet ring it is, whose cord it is, whose staff it is. Can you imagine the shock Judah felt in his self-righteous judgmental throne that he'd exalted himself as he's pointing his finger down at her for her sin when she says, you are the one who did this to me when you slept with the prostitute. And that's what happens in the story is we have nowhere to go. We are just like Judah. We are just like Ur, we're just like Onan, we're just like Tamar. All of us have sinned and we all deserve the punishment of sin and the wages of sin is death. And yet God, here we sit, bathing in his grace. He's so good to us. And yet he convicts us this morning of our sin 
In verse 26, Judah recognized them. He looks at his ID, he looks at his ring and his cord and his staff, and he said, she is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not have relations with her. But God uses evil for good. In verse 27, it came about at that time Tamar was giving birth that behold, there were twins in her womb. At this time, you should go, really, again? If you're good readers, you're going, okay, this is God, Jacob and Esau, twins, here we go. She's got twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place that while she was giving birth, one put out a hand and the midwife said, oh, grab that hand, put a red thread around it. Saying, this one came out first. But verse 29 says, but then, whoop, nope. Behold, the brother came out. And then she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. Then afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand and he was named Zira. So what just happened? The younger just stole the place of the older. Again. This is crazy. In other words, God is in this. The younger just stole the place of the older in a crazy way. But that's exactly what Jacob did. Jacob stole the older. God is choosing whom he chooses to be the birth line of Jesus, the Messiah. So God is working in the midst of this crazy situation of sinful, evil story. Powerful people being sinful. People in a position of weakness being sinful. All of it. And yet somehow in all of this, God brought forth Perez to be the chosen one. Now who is Perez? Where's the good in this? Go to the gospel, Matthew 1, 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. So what is that saying? This is the family line of Jesus. The son of David, got it? The son of Abraham, got it? Promise to Abraham, Matthew 1, verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, So Isaac, not not Ishmael. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, not Esau. Jacob, the father of Judah. Judah, not Joseph or all those other brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Okay, yeah, but Perez was the father of Hezron. God is preserving the line of Jesus. What's the point? God uses evil for good. You want to sit there and debate how? You got me. Well, was Tamar really? Yeah. I don't think there's any sign here that Tamar wasn't guilty of her scheming. Well, then how was God? You can ask him when you get there. God uses evil for good. So what's the point for you? I think we've got two applications here. Number one, 
We've already said it. God does not promise you another breath. Don't presume upon his grace. Every breath is a gift. So repent of your sin and throw yourself on the grace and mercy of God through Jesus Christ. The other is as a follower of Christ and you find yourself enslaved in Potiphar's house, having been betrayed by your brothers, having been thrown into a pit, having been sold into slavery, having been treated like evil, or maybe you're Tamar and a powerful man has done you wickedly wrong. Or maybe you are the powerful man and you have done wickedness toward others. All of it says, turn to Christ. Turn to Christ now. God uses evil for good. Persevere in the faith. All of us can can relate to feeling people have sinned. The world is evil. It's debauchery. It's wicked. It's out of control. Everything's corrupt. What in the world is going on? Be comforted. Persevere in the faith. God uses evil for good. Be encouraged. Father God, we praise you for the encouragement this morning. We praise you for the encouragement to to have faith in you. And for many, that means this morning turning and trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of sins for the first time. I pray, Lord, that you would bring that about in many hearts this morning. And I pray that I'll have the opportunity or other ministers up front after the service to talk to many people about that decision. And for many of us, Lord, it just it's such a blessing to be reminded that you use evil for good because we've seen evil, we've felt evil, we've been afflicted by evil. And it's just a good reminder that there's a delay, you're coming again, you use it for good, you're gonna keep your promises, you're faithful. Help us to persevere in faith. It's in Christ's glorious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.